Hey friends, I'm Ali O'Grady and welcome to Thoughtful Human, the podcast. In today's episode, we round out our series with the Success Stories team with a conversation with their co-executive director, Manny Thomas III. Manny shares his personal story and how violence became his primary response to conflict and complex emotions. He describes his feelings in the face of a life sentence and the ways in which it's conflicted with his sense of self and his role in his community. He walks us through his educational journey and dives deeper into the broader systems of justice, the difference between punitive, restorative, and transformative models, and what real accountability, safety, and healing look like. We also talk more explicitly about toxic masculinity's role in women's issues and sexual assault, how men participate in and perpetuate rape culture, and what genuine allyship and empowerment look like. Finally, we talk about the vision and future of success stories, early education for kids and parents, and what he's most hopeful about when it comes to the work they're doing. As always, we leave you with some suggestions for approaching conversations within your own lives and relationships, and how you can get involved with success stories or support their work moving forward. As mentioned, there is discussion in this episode around physical and sexual violence as we consider practical pathways to reduce harm. Please take this into consideration and only listen to this episode if and when you have capacity for these topics. For the purposes of this conversation, we'll be using men, male, and masculine to refer to any person identifying as a man, and women, female, and feminine to refer to any person identifying as a woman. Without further ado, Manny Thomas III. Hi, Manny. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I have had so much fun talking with the guys on your team and working with success stories over the last few weeks in uh, preparation for our retail launch and partnership. And I'm super excited to talk to you today uh, a little bit more about your personal story, but also just more broadly about the vision for success stories and what we can all do uh, within our communities and from just a broader social perspective. So with that, can we start off just and learn a little bit more about your personal story, where you grew up and what it was like in your, in your home and your experience? Yeah. So I grew up in what was then, I guess, was a small town um, in Southern California called Corona, California, uh, which is not so small anymore. Um, and for the large part of, of my youth, I would say up until... Probably seventh grade, I was the only African-American in my class. So there was that issue, I think, in preschool around four years old was the first time I had ever been called a nigger, had a hot wheel thrown at me, and, you know, there's a scar over my eye still. Um, and then when I was in elementary school, I was called Little Black Sambo, who at the time that I didn't even know who that was, but I knew that wasn't appropriate. Um, and really had to, like, question whether or not who I was as an individual was enough, whether that be because of my parents or um, or whatever. Um, so I found ways, you know, some maladaptive ways as a young man to deal with that. Um, I think early on, you know, the kind of like the boys will be boy added, boys will be boys attitude kind of prevailed, and you know there was there was fights, and I realized really quickly that fight my ability to fight was an equalizer. Um, and because I could, um, the, the 
differences or the things that didn't add up about me didn't matter anymore um, because I began to be identified in that way. And I excelled in other things too, like sports. Um, so that was kind of like the determining factor as a youth. Within my home, um, you know, I was the youngest by a long shot. So, um, like, I, and I, I, I would say I felt loved and everything, and I didn't feel like I was a whole lot missing. Um, I didn't realize, like, I, you know, to you, oftentimes you don't realize till you get much older that, you know, your parents aren't perfect. Um, they're, they're basically coming into this with, with their own traumas and doing the best that they can. And the same thing, you know, with my siblings, right? Like they had their own insecurities and they were trying to figure things out. Um, and I didn't realize early on how much that um, influenced some of my behavior, especially with my older brother. You know, my older brother, um, you know, as a, as a younger brother, your older brother, he worshiped the ground he walks on. So he could do no wrong. So a lot of the maladaptive stuff that I seen him expressing about his manhood early on was like, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that even bigger and better. Um, mm-hmm. How much older strange. was he than you? You said you're the, you're the youngest of four siblings? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my brother was eight years older than me. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, there, there was, and, you know, a lot of lessons about manhood either came from him or when I was, or when I was willing to listen, you know, my dad. And what were some of those, you know, early messages that you were receiving from him either explicitly or just by observing? Oh, for, oh Jesus. So for my brother, it was like, uh, you know, never allow anything to be taken from you. Uh, make sure that you're always the most dominant person in the room. Um, make sure that, you know, basically like you're getting what you want when it came, you know, to, to girls, it was more like quantity meant more than quality. Um, and they were seen as an extension of him as opposed to their own, you know, they weren't respected as, as people really. It was one of these things that it was a status symbol type of thing. Um, to be more specific, I remember that we used to have, my parents had like converted the garage into an area like where we could hang out with our friends and stuff. Um, and I think, my, I think my brother was 17. He wasn't 18 yet, he was still in high school. Um, so I was eight or nine and he was sitting on the couch and there was one girl to his left and one girl to his right and he was like, he asked one, hey, do you love me? And she said, yeah, or whatever. And then he asked the other one the same thing. And, and, and I remember like thinking to myself, like, yeah, that's what this is about. Mm. Um, so that was kind of the example. My dad, which is strange, it was very different, um, but it was still very patriarchal in nature. So my dad, you know, he's old school. My dad was born, I think, 1950. Uh, was raised in the combination between back east and south which you know america was a very different time um and you know he lived kind of by like the old school you know rules his his job was to provide uh to protect and punish and he and he wore that hat very well my dad was an excellent provider um uh, he was working ever since he was 14 15 up until he retired in the 60s um was very strict with certain things you know certain things were just not allowed um and you know he protected his family he showed up for me in the ways that he knew how 
the way that masculinity told him to. So like I, I always reflect back on one of the things that I carried with me was like I, I used to carry with me. It's like I think I wish my dad would have loved me different, but then I realized he loved me how he he loved me the way that he knew to love me. Mm-hmm. So like he he I played sports my entire life. I don't think my dad ever missed one sporting event. He was there mm-hmm. always. Um, but there was always a part of me that wished when I was younger that I could take certain emotional things to him that you know, manhood and the way that we view manhood just didn't allow me to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that those are some of the lessons that I learned early on that really put me in a position not to be my full emotional self, which of course much later became an issue. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that as you know, as you entered your teen years, what kind of issues did that present? How did this idea of manhood evolve? Yeah. So, you know, at at a a point, it eventually became, and I've talked about this before, but the violence became my, not even necessarily a fallback. It became the way in which I dealt with situations. And it wasn't like the, the way I dealt with just problems or whatever. It, it, showed up anytime that I felt less than or insecure or uncomfortable like um and then and that didn't when I, I people's oftentimes when they hear violence they think it's physical violence isn't always physical some people are deterred simply by your willingness to show up in a violent matter some violence can be intellectual right violence could be uh through conversation um it can show up by withdrawal right I think oftentimes people don't associate those things um and that was just my answer. So it, it crippled me in a way in which I wasn't able to, and although I think I've always been pretty verbal, I was not able to, I didn't have the language to express complex emotions to deal with complex issues. Um, and because of that, there was a whole aspect of myself that was not allowed to grow. Um, and, you know, that, that you know, eventually led to substance abuse problems, of course, like maintaining main, meaningful relationships in my life was difficult because I didn't know how to maintain a relationship with myself. Um, and eventually, I mean, ultimately, it ended up in me committing uh, a terrible crime in which people were harmed. And I was sentenced to spend the rest of my life in prison. You know, that, that ultimately was a culmination of my decisions, that it wasn't one decision. It was a pattern that I had been on for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So how did incarceration and facing this sentence, I mean, just in general, what is that? You were very, very young also. Tell me how that felt at the time. Ooh, how did that feel at the time? It was, I mean, overwhelming is the word that comes to mind right now. Um, But if I'm being completely honest, it doesn't give it justice. Um, Confusion. Um, although I'm able to articulate certain things in the moment, at that point in my life, I could not. So I couldn't figure out how someone like me who had never been in any serious trouble before, even trouble, I've been in trouble, but not anything serious. Um, never been in trouble with the law or anything like that. So it was confusion because I, I, I didn't, I couldn't figure out how I got there. Um, um, and it was confusing even to the people who are in my life because the way in which we're told that we show up in manhood, like we don't ask for help, we don't allow those vulnerabilities to show, all these type of things from the, from an outside appearance, it looked like I had my stuff together, right? 
I, you know, I, I did relatively well in school. I was great in sports, had a job since I was 15. And even when I eventually moved out on my own, like I wasn't struggling from an outside perspective. Um, and even the things that uh, were quote unquote difficult in my life, like when, when my first sister passed away, I was 16 years old and I, I hadn't really dealt with that in a healthy way, but nobody would know that because again, you don't share those vulnerable aspects of yourself, you know, out of fear of being seen as 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 weak or or um, you know just just not man enough. Um, so to have that thing happen, um, like I said, not, it it wasn't just confusing to my family; it was confusing to my community because of the way that I showed up in my community. Like you had neighbors coming over when the police arrested me. Like what's going on? Like mm-hmm. uh, you know, when cops were trying to explain, you know, community members were like, not th- like not this guy and if that happened there's a reason um because it was such a contrast to who was to who was showing up uh, but it was it was just representative of deeper issues that i had that of course i was not uh sharing with those who were closest to me mm-hmm. it sounds incredibly overwhelming and painful and i'm uh, just want to acknowledge your loss um at what age was it that you were incarcerated? Uh, it was five days after my 22nd birthday. Okay. Um, I, I do want to say, though, that was also a moment for me to see the person in the mirror clearly. Because although I had not, I, I wasn't aware of a lot of things, being in that position made it keenly aware, like, there's some things that you need to do about yourself. Um, and and prior to that point in my life, I was lit, like, life was, it was all about me. Like it was me, 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 me. And I realized as I was sitting in that courtroom and charges were being read off, like, you know, not only was I being taken away from my family, but I had also took a lot from the people that I subjected to harm, right? Like I had took a sense of safety from the individual that I shot, I had to, you know, I don't, you know, I'll never know how it, it affected him psychologically. I don't know what it did to his work capacity. Um, so there was a whole lot of things that I became aware of that because I chose not to deal with issues in my personal life, my overall community was now being subjected to harm. Um, and, and that was an alarm bell for me to really get clear about, like to stop fabricating this story about who I was being the good guy and to really look in the mirror and say, okay, let's be honest about who, not only who you are, but how we got here. Mm-hmm. So did you have those, like this consciousness came right away upon your incarceration or was this, what did that process look like? I mean, it was in pieces. So I think, um, I remember, you know, they're, they're hearing the charges being read off that felt outside of myself when I'm hearing, you know, count one, you know, attempted murder, count two, attempted murder, count three, attempted murder, count four, it's all the deadly weapon. Like, it just felt like no way is that me that they're talking about. Um, and then later, after I had been convicted, it became, I felt minimized in a way like I will only be known for the worst thing I ever did in my life, right? Um, and then when I was in prison, it became, you know, you're worried about your survival and all that. But once you get that figured out, 
it became this again okay i gotta get clear about and truthful about not only who i had become but how i got there and then more importantly what do we do about it i would say the aha where everything shifted was when i shifted my paradigm to say okay let's con let's concentrate on what you can control um, so i couldn't control whether or not i was going to get out of prison right I can control whether or not there would be terrible things that happened while I was in prison. Those were things that were beyond me. What I could do um, was I could no longer be a taker, right? Because I was taking, you know, not physically, like I wasn't stealing or anything, but I was taking trust and emotional energy and, and things away from the people that I love, from my community and all that. And I made the decision that that would no longer be. So I did, I had control to work on me and become, even if it, even if it was while I was spending the rest of my life in prison, I could become the, the, you know, the son that my parents raised me to be. I can become the nephew that, I mean, I could become the F, the uncle that my nephews needed, right? Because, you know, there was a lot of male leadership that was missing in their lives because my brother, you know, he, he had his own things that he had to deal with, but it wasn't, fo it wasn't about focusing on my brother. I can't change my brother, but I can be there for my nephews in a way that he could not. Um, it was about being, even in prison, uh, a community member that people could look to as an opportunity to do something different, right? It was taking my story and being able to help those maybe who came after me. Um, it was about um, one, a good friend of mine much later during my incarceration uh, was going through some of my accomplishments. Uh, and he said something I'll never forget. He said that my gifts were not my own and that I had a duty to share them. Mm. Um, which allowed me to live a life of service in a way uh, in prison to where I was able to change my direct community, right? So it was all, it was a, it was like a, a combination of things that I began to see about life and about how I can operate within my life in order to change things. And it really was, it really was powerful, right? Because prior to that, I, it felt, you know, I imagine most people feel this way. They felt helpless, right? Sometimes change seems monumental. Uh, and it's hard for us to identify areas in our life where we've made meaningful change. Um, or it's hard for us to see how little things have bigger implications because in society, the world is moving fast. Things are changing. You have responsibilities. There's stress. There's a whole, a whole lot of stuff. One of the advantages about prison is because the community is so small, those ripple effects come back to you much faster. So if you're doing negative things, the, re the negative results come back much faster. If you're doing positive things, you can see the effect of it much quicker than you can in society. So it became this thing where I was like, okay, when I've learned, uh, and we'll take like groups and developing tools, right? Like when I, when I was a part of certain groups or when I started uh, really like engaging in education, and, you know, changing my framework and how I'm thinking and all that, the changes that produced in my life was was noticeable much quicker. Um, you know, being able to tutor people, the, the effect of that was noticeable much quicker. Uh, being a youth offender mentor, the effect of that was noticeable much quicker. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, you know, you may be a teacher in society and say something to a student that plants a seed, but they don't realize till five, 10 years from now. But in prison, even, even, if, even if that is the case, because prison is such a small community, you that person isn't as far away in five, 10 years from now. You might be in the same building with somebody for that long. 
So you still get to see um, how how your contribution came into fruition for that person. So th- those moments were huge for me. Yeah, I imagine really, really encouraging and inspiring and obviously led you to, to do some amazing things. Can you talk a little bit more about the education piece? You pursued uh, several different degrees. What were you studying and what were you looking to start reforming this framework that you're talking about? It, uh, and I'm, I'll come back to that because I think there's two questions in there. Uh, education in and of itself, honestly, was an opportunity for me to honor a promise that I had made to my sister, Tracy. So my, my sister, Tracy, who passed away when I was 16, was very big on education. She she always did well in school. She ended up going to Stanford. She got a degree in engineering. Like, that was just her thing. Um, and she always believed in me in that way and told me that I was smart and all that. Um, so I, I was, you know, on the yard. I had been in prison for five years at the time, and I heard two individuals talking about school. And it was basically an older white gentleman talking to a younger white guy about you know getting involved in education uh and basically got to the end of the conversation he was like man i just don't understand why you don't want to do this it's free so i was like wait wait, wait, what like it's free so really it just started as an opportunity for me to honor a promise that i had made to my sister and then throughout the course of taking classes and there was a a course that i was taking on um it was for my business management. I think it was organizational behavior. And I began to see how things that I was learning was applicable to like my life and relationships. So like I was sitting on committees in prison and I'm like, oh, learning this could help me have a relationship with administration and a more effective for like the prison population in a more effective way because I was learning certain tools. Then I realized, oh, this could also help with like friendships and family because like, some of the concepts that I was learning were still applicable to life. Um, and so that was helping. And then, it, you know, it boosted uh, my self-esteem, really. It gave me a greater confidence, you know, because although people had told me that I was smart, that the problem was I didn't believe it for myself. So I, as I began to accomplish and be on the dean's list or whatever, like it reinforced things that I had already heard. And now that I knew that I could do for myself, so then I eventually became a tutor. So like those things helped you know self-esteem is important it's one of the uh, it's one of the core needs right i think it's even you know when you look at maslow's hierarchy of needs it's mm-hmm. on there for a reason mm-hmm. uh because people's self-esteem and self-worth has um a huge impact about you know how they show up in their communities and whether they have a healthy outlook on themselves so yeah that began to change me um in a way that even now I'm grateful for. And at the time, like I said, I was studying business. I didn't know what for. Now, of course, it ended up being to my advantage, right? It ended up, it ended up helping uh, being in the position to where I now get to lead an organization. But yeah, it was, there were, you know, business management, um, organizational behavior, stuff like that. Um, so at what point did you intersect success stories? I mean, you're featured in The Feminist on Cell Block Y in the documentary. Mm-hmm at what point did you meet Richie and where was the organization at or what was it not even developed at that point? No, they had been, so I had got to CTF in, which is a correctional training facility in 2015, where I met um, uh, the the success stories community and Richie and everybody. Um, And I I went through the first cycle in 2016. Uh, But it was really through 
conversations that we had engaged in either in the library, in prison, or on the yard. Um, and quite frankly, uh, me and Richie were on the yard and we were working out and I was making fun of one of his tattoos uh, and I was using problematic language. And he basically was like, have you ever considered the way that you use language is furthering the oppression of other people? And I, you know, you know, I never thought about anything in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, he was like, you know, you should check out, you know, you should come check out success stories. You may find out that the way that you view masculinity um, is holding you back from being the highest version of yourself. And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> you know, there was some arrogance involved. I was like, yeah, like, I'm, I'm okay. Like I've been in prison for, I've been in prison for quite some time. Hadn't been in any trouble. You know, I have was pretty accomplished myself. I had started two groups. I got multiple degrees. So I was like, nah, I think I'm good. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. And then, you know, because I'm curious, we had other conversations and he he's like, ah, just come check it out. So eventually I came to check it out. And the where it began to shift is I began to realize while I was in the group that regardless of where we grew up, what our age was what the financial situation was with our family, a lot of us were giving the same rules about masculinity. And those rules were not allowing us to be healthy individuals. They didn't give us the permission to be our full emotional selves, which we, you know, we now know if people aren't able to express their full range of emotions, um, to one, it doesn't, that's not conducive of any like, men, like good mental health. And two, it really informs us like, uh, you know, if you really look at the state of young men and when anger becomes the only socially acceptable um, emotion that they can show without being, you know, deemed as weak or whatever, like it starts the same cycle that I was on. So when I started to see that and I started to see the commonalities of that and how it showed up in different cultures and how it showed up in different households and even it showed up in households that didn't even have men in it, right? that showed me how embedded the idea of masculinity and how that was in our culture, I, I was like, oh no, there's more investigation that needs to be done here. Like I need to be here for that. And then after going through my first cycle, I knew that in some way, I didn't know that, you know, it, it would be the work that we're doing, but I knew that in some way I would be in, involved in the conversation because as I continued to be in the conversation, it again, like school and like anything else, any other tool that I accumulated along the way, it was changing my environment. Like, it drastically changed the relationship my father and I have. It changed most relationships in my life, but it, you know, it changed my male-to-male partnerships, how I showed up in my friendships. It changed the way in which, in which I viewed my position in community um, and it, how we have, you know, how this punishment culture isn't typically working for us and how it can be harmful. And we just perpetuate cycles of harm by continuing to rely on it to solve our social issues. So as those things kept happening, I was like, oh yeah, I, I gotta be aware of this and I, and, I, and I gotta investigate it and really be a part of it um, because it makes sense if, we, if we're gonna be open to any type of meaningful healing. Mm-hmm. That, that initial entry point and just willingness to hear some of those different ideas or, or challenges to you know what we see as traditional ideas of masculinity, I think is so, critical. I mean, for me, obviously very different background and circumstances identify as a, as a female, but, um, as you can't unsee it, as soon as you watch the documentary and hear the things you talk about, I'm like, oh, this is, 
this is everyone I know participating in this in, in such in ways that are just leading to such tragic outcomes. Um, that's why, you know, I felt such an urgency when I, when I viewed it and, and learned more about your work to, um, to figure out how, you know, thoughtful human is taking a different approach, but the whole idea is how do we help people facilitate challenging conversations? And uh, for me, trying to approach men that I see really struggling and hurting around these ideas that are now, you know, it's, it's such a thin veil when you can really break it down to just these um, you know, core tenants that men are pursuing that are, you know, manifesting in so many different ways. What was really interesting that you just said was Richie's first comment in disrupting your language. And that's a question I, I have for you and your whole team and just how you are having literally that first moment with people who are really resistant in a way that's not condescending or pretentious or making people feel shame you know, there's this, this balancing act of trying to call people in, um, you know, your team does an amazing job of creating that space from what I've observed of not, you know, people say wildly offensive or not politically correct things. And our culture really likes to deny that and stop the conversation right there. A lot of times you guys are doing it really differently. That's where you're starting and inviting the conversation. Can you share a little bit more about just your approach at the beginning with anyone? Yeah, I think one, I think it's important to acknowledge that like shame is like the the enemy to like accountability and, and, and any type of meaningful change because I mean, who wants to carry that baggage, right? Like if we know people are gonna get like publicly shamed for something, it's like, that's not gonna get us where we need to be. Um, yeah, I, my personal, like well, in success stories, there's a model where we, one, we relate to individuals, acknowledging that one, not only do we still have aspects of toxic masculinity and patriarchy that we're working through, but that we've done what, what we're saying that you're, the, what you're most likely doing as well. We've done that, right? Uh, and, and more importantly, we investigate what that looks like in our lives. Like, so what does that mean? If we, if we're, if we're acting out in this way, what is it doing to us? And then we ask the real critical question is, is what, what happens if we do something different? So like, that is the model in which success stories does it. But for like me and everyday life, uh, there's literally two things that I typically do. One, I try to model the other behavior because what I notice with men Human beings in general, men a lot of the time is they don't want to feel like, like if it's me and my boys and we in the crew, they don't want to feel like the odd one out. I don't know what that says about our, our ego or what, but men typically don't want to feel like the odd one out. So if we don't show something different and someone says something problematic and we just let it go, the idea is or the belief is that's okay. But if I'm modeling something different, it's one showing that like, nah, okay, that it gives them another avenue to go with. Mm -hmm. Also, another one that's big is reframing. So a lot of the time, I don't need to necessarily jump on you about how your language is wrong. When I'm talking to you, I can then reframe it in a way that's not offensive. Mm -hmm. And then people can see, like, even without you having to say, like, whatever your political view is or whatever, like people can see how that can be problematic. And oftentimes, especially on a longer timeline, that's good enough. So I'll be honest, I had people who, when I came home and one, th they were dealing with the contrast of who I was when I, when I left and who I was now. That was hard for them, mm -hmm. especially in certain situations because I had to create boundaries to where like, I love you, but I'm gonna love you from a difference because what you're on right now, I, I cannot and will not be on. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and two, even for the people who were not doing problematic things, like there's certain ideas that I will no longer perpetuate with my language. And, you know, they were like, oh, you're doing too much or it's not that serious or whatever. But just by me continuing to model that behavior has shifted a lot of that. So even in the positive things, like I, I make it a habit, especially with my male counterparts, when I start a conversation with, I start off by telling them I love you. So I'll say, I love you, brother. What's going on? For some people, that was weird to them. But a month later, two months later, now no conversation starts without it, whether I do it or not. And it's not weird to them. So I think the modeling of it, um, the naming things, the having conversations, the reframing is huge. Um, sometimes I think that people think dealing with something means you got to come, you got to come for it head on. And sometimes that's not because I think it's human nature. It's kind of like when you look at parents and kids, right? If your initial reaction to, is to yell at the, the child, they're going to shut down immediately because people don't want to be yelled. So it's, they're already in, in a defensive position. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't want to hear that. So it's, it's, it's about having a tactful way to show them something different. So they have to investigate it for themselves. Yeah. And just the baseline that sets that, you know, what's your, the feedback you're giving might be difficult. It might not be, people might not be ready at that moment, but that you're, the foundation is love regardless. You know, that's where you're coming from. This isn't coming from a place of judgment or me trying to make you feel any type of way. It's just uh, a really nice, you know, of course, if it feels authentic, it's a really nice way to make that really clear from the get-go. I love that. Um, so I'm curious today when you are faced with situation, when you feel challenges to your manhood or when you see patriarchal views or situations arising, what is kind of the thought process that you're going to? What are some of the questions you're asking yourself? Okay, I, if I could, re- I'm going to reframe. <laughs> yeah, please. I don't, so when I hear someone say, when you feel challenges to your manhood now, those challenges don't feel the same because now the way that I live, I acknowledge that I am the definer of what my manhood looks like. So it's hard, so it doesn't, now when I'm challenging, when I may be acting into patriarchy, that is a different thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, I wanna be like truthful without like oversharing. Um, let's, let's take my marriage for instance. If if there are things, if I find myself not doing things because in my mind I've delegated them to my wife on the basis of gender, I need to check that. Or I'm thinking that she can't do certain things because I gender. I need to check that. So for instance, I have found myself getting irritated when she took out the trash. Now, her taking out the trash isn't a problem or me wanting to do it for her isn't the problem. The problem is, what is that idea steeped in? And I had to be honest with myself and be like, well, she, you know, she shouldn't take off the, like, that is a man's job. Uh, and I had to check that. And I think that that's what, you know, us being willing to be open and be honest 
about that is is important. Also, like if there are if there are things that come up where I need to be vulnerable, a friend and I had a conversation. We have, you know, there's different there's dualities to our relationship, both professional and friendship. And I had to be vulnerable and be honest in the space and say, hey, look, um, I don't feel safe in this space. Something that you don't hear most men do, right? Like most when you're gonna ever say, I don't feel safe within the space in order to share in that way. But I had to do that because it was it was it was produce it was you know, re-triggering traumas that I had, right? Um, so it was, it's, those are the things that I look to. You think about like, okay, how do you do that? Like one, um, it's a constant checking, like, all right, I'm, I'm going to see how I'm showing up and, and be willing to listen to others. There may be things that other people bring up and say, hey, you know, the way in which that was done, and I have to challenge, like, I have to really look at it, like, hmm, what was that based in? And like, where does it come from? And, and you know, and and rather, you know, let's let's look at how did I contribute? Because it's not about fault, right? Like it's a lot of the time it's basically looking at like, okay, how did I contribute to that understanding? Whether it's true or not. Because mm-hmm. even if a person's feelings aren't facts, there's a reason they feel that way. And I have I should check that. Like I should see what my contribution was to that in the hopes that they would do the same thing. I hope that answered the question. I'm sorry. Yeah. You brought up something really interesting and something that I am trying to tackle from thoughtful humans perspective, which is just literally giving people some words, some options, like a a literal, this might be sound really silly, but I've noticed when I'm talking with people about approaching conversations around death, around grief, around addiction, mental health, I mean, people are just really at a loss for even, how do you, how do you say anything explicitly about vulnerability or safety in a conversation? I feel like that is where we're missing really early on. And so many, like there's so many opportunities for this and people just don't have the tools or um, verbiage to, to get there and create those boundaries or, or really try to um, indicate, you know, where they're at. Um, I think that would be really interesting to talk with your team more about like like that disruption that you mentioned with Richie and framing that like, hey, have you ever considered that this is, you know, potentially leading to the oppression of other people and 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 you? Um, I mean, I just don't think that's something that I don't want to generalize, but I don't think that's something a lot of people have in their mind or vocabulary. And what are the other, I mean, there's infinite number of them, but just how do you start to build that toolkit for people? I mean, obviously your whole program is <laughs> more or less doing that, but sometimes it comes down to these really simple examples, you know, for, for a thoughtful human, it, I'm mostly saying, how are you? How can I help? Do you want to talk about it? How's your heart today? Like I'm here, like just so simple yet. Those are the things that so often people are just unable to get there. And I think it's just really, um, just such a big opportunity. So I would love to talk with you guys more about just what some modeling, some really simple examples of how to start these conversations with people. Yeah, sure. And we have the society, like, again, when we look at, this is a much deeper conversation, but when we look at like a capitalistic society and how it involves patriarchy in order to feed itself, right? Like the under underneath thing that's happening that a lot of people don't see is, again, the acknowledgement of the person. Mm-hmm. See, we live in a system that is really only concerned with objects. So if people begin to see people as objects, it makes it easier for them to do certain things and cause certain harms and all these other things. And then what happens to us is we begin to lose 
our ability to have that language in, in what you're talking about, right? Like we don't care in the same way because the system isn't informing us to care in that way, right? Like mm-hmm. it's completely different. So I think that, that that's another thing that's like advantageous about having these conversations and get people to see like, we want you to see that the system is doing exactly what it was designed to do for a very specific reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see it all over the place, right? We see it in the way that our justice system will sentence people to arbitrary amounts of time. We see it in how people are treated in medical. And we see it in our business, right? Like the, it's all about the bottom line. It's not about the people. It's in the service of a product or pro- profit, not in service of people, right? And what Thoughtful Human is doing and what Success Stories is doing is we're centering the person again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even if we look at, I think, uh, another conversation that's not being had around, um, like even the way that we police ourselves is, we are outsourcing our uh, our ability to deal with conflicts. Mm-hmm. We're basically like, oh no, I don't want to deal with that. I'm gonna call you and you deal with it. Yes. Regardless of what happens to the individual or seeing what like what circumstances created that, whatever. Like we're not deeply involved in that anymore, as we once were as human beings, right? Mm-hmm. Like this tribal culture, we've got away from that, and I think that that is what that is what's the underlying thing. So when you have this. Um, when you have this system as it is, it's so far reaching and so embedded in like the fabric of who we are in Western civilization. These other things are just natural byproducts of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, because we've been dealing with it for so long, we're seeing how dangerous that is. And yeah. it's really just, it's a scream for us to change and, and get back to some, and get back to some native practices. Well, we, we love to oversimplify and put everyone in certain boxes because because it's easier to, to tolerate and to other people than to feel really complex feelings. I mean, it's so messy, all of, all of us, all of our circumstances and just this idea that, um, you know, anyone is any one moment is, is crazy. So can you lead people through the difference between a punitive justice system, restorative justice and transformative justice? Yeah. Um, so the way in which I've been schooled on that, and and there are fantastic books that people can read about, like Miriam Kawa, another transformative justice um, heroes of mine. But the the simplified version is: punitive systems are only concerned with exactly that. Something happens, we need to punish that. Right? We need to. to our justice system operated that, that way for a very long time. You caused harm, we're gonna punish you to the highest extreme we can. And what that does is that does it doesn't focus on the healing that's needed for the person who was the subject of harm, nor the person who caused harm. It, it's simply concerned with punishment. This happened, this is going to happen to you. As people become or became more aware of it, there was this idea that we'll shift to the restorative justice model, but Restorative justice model focuses then on the person who was harmed, which isn't a problem, but when we focus on the person who was harmed and not the person who caused the harm, and more importantly, restorative justice has this idea that we're restoring the person who was harmed to the place we are before the harm happened. Like the assumption is that that was a good place to begin with, which mm-hmm. it may not have been, right? Um, so there's there's problems with that. Transformative justice is the is the form of justice that's going to say, okay, we need to acknowledge three things. 
we need to take care of the needs of the person who was subjected to harm, the person who caused harm, so this harm isn't likely to happen, again, and the systems that we know cause harm and put people in those positions as well, right? Because then it, it'll keep us from creating environments where people feel like these things need to happen. So it acknowledges the systems can cause harm, the person who caused the harm and the person who was subjected to harm. And that's the way we're gonna get to more healed and healthy communities because it will allow us to really use the full talent um, of, of, of our communities and to be able to say, okay, how can we create things that are beneficial for us? Because at the end of the day, the individual success is the community success, right? Um, and I think that those things are invaluable when we talk about what we're trying to do. And if we be honest, if we look at the systems that we have right now, they're not doing that, mm -hmm. right? Um, in fact, they're, you know, they perpetuate other cycles of violence. Um, and, we, and we see it all over the place, right? We're not just talking about like when we, when we take people from their communities and, and subject them to further harm and isolation that is prison, right? Um, but also we're not giving them what they need in order to transform behavior. That's what success stories is about, right? Success stories believes that we can give individuals what they need while still in community. I can give them the tools that they need in order to transform behavior. Um, but I mean, we, we also see it in the way that victims of sexual violence are treated, right? And how, and how the justice system treats them, right? Like, so when we start to look at it, it's a whole lot of harm that's being produced and the way that that's being handled. And what we're saying is we need to acknowledge that those systems are causing that harm and find another way to do things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just seems so inefficient, counterproductive, exhausting to focus on just the very tail end of what has happened. And obviously, you know, transformative justice taking a much more holistic approach. And, you know, for me and what I'm so inspired by with your work is just what does prevention look like? What does diversion look like in the first place so that we don't even have to be having these conversations? Of course, we have a reality of today. Of course, there has to be accountability. And mm -hmm. um, which our system right now does not concern itself with. If we look at the way the system is designed right now, it doesn't care, it doesn't care about accountability. It doesn't hold anybody accountable. And in fact, the way that we, which it goes back to the shame we were talking about, right? If, in fact, the way that we do it right now, nobody's going to be accountable, uh, which speaks to another problem. One other thing I want to say about, you hear restorative or reform a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. The reason that those have failed is because if we really look at it, the system is doing exactly what it was designed to do. So reform suggests that, oh no, we just need to change certain things because like, no, the system, once we started to monetize the, uh, you know, holding people captive, once, you know, we began to privatize and we started to have this whole thing with the prison industrial complex, like, no, it's doing exactly what it was designed to do, mm -hmm. um, which is why also reform doesn't work, which is why we need to completely, you know, get rid of the system as is and, and replace it. Can you give just a maybe really simple but concrete example of what those different approaches to punishment or crime or justice look like for anybody who's maybe not familiar with with these different with punitive, restorative, transformative, what that might look like in the instance of theft or something that is a common uh, situation in which someone might become incarcerated? So punitive system says somebody stole something they go do some arbitrary amount of time for that theft, right? So 
The restorative might say, okay, somebody stole something. So the person whose property was stolen, there, there may be some type of um, restitution that is paid, right? In order to say here, you know, this was taken from you, now this is given back. And then the person that caused the harm is still sentenced to some arbitrary amount of time, um, which will look different depending on what your racial background is, which is another problem. And then transformative justice will say, and then I'll, let me go back. So in the restorative justice part, by simply giving something back that was taken doesn't address like the trauma that's associated now with that incident, right? So if I if I hold somebody at gunpoint and take something and then you're like, and I, so let's just say for instance, I take $500 and then you say, oh, okay, well, we're gonna make sure you get your $500 back. That doesn't deal with the trauma of the, that you just experienced when, when I took your $500 at gunpoint. And then what transformative justice will then say is, okay, we need to be concerned with the overall well-being of the person who was subjected to harm, right? We need to also worry about the person who committed harm, give them to the tools to transform their behavior, make sure that they are held accountable, that they, that they take responsibility to say, okay, I understand that I did this thing, it hurt you in these ways. I will now make sure, do what I can to make sure that it doesn't happen. And that's often where you see like people like really living out their myths is what that is, right? But it will do that. And then it also says, okay, we need to look at the systems that are contributing to people not being fed, safe, employed to where they don't, you know what I mean? Because we know that the systems that do well aren't the ones with the largest number of police or prisons, but they're the ones with the most resources. So, and that's another thing that I would want to tell anybody like listening, right? Like, I don't want people to feel like it's this big thing that we can't do because we're already doing it. And if we're being quite frank, policing and prisons and all that is new it's like within the last what, two centuries, like human beings for millennia, we're, we're, we're dealing with harm in a completely different way. So it's not this thing that we don't know how to do. We've just lost the ability to do it because we've, again, outsourced our ability to do conflict and fell in love with this idea of punishment and all that. But yeah, that's what those three systems will look like with that one incident, right? Is the, the last one is concerned about uh, the overall well-being of the whole community, right? We're going to look at both people and we're going to look at the systems that need to be in place so that people have the needs that they need, right? Um, a lot of the time, we, we can already see through studies that if people have access to meaningful employment, people have access to healthy food, and people feel safe, that, that overall our communities are safe, crime goes down, all that. So, mm -hmm. And how do you think reshaping ideas of manhood and masculinity, plant, I mean, that to me, that's one of is the same as one of those systems that's perpetuating that. Sure, I mean, because patriarchy does that. Um, so we begin to see what's, what's possible when we allow, there's a powerful thing that happens when men discover and take advantage of having the permission to be their full emotional selves, right? Um, I don't need to subdue my feelings. So then therefore I'm not either drowning myself in alcohol or, you know, sexual violence or, you know what I mean? Like other maladaptive things that humans do in order to like deal with things that they can't bring to the surface. Um, 
I also can build meaningful relationships that become meaningful support structures, right? A lot of the time, if we look at how we're showing up in our relationships, they're surface level relationships without any depth or meaning to them. So it's hard to really like go deep and have somebody that's there for you in that way. Um, and it's also creating the space and creating community that will support you in this new frame of thinking, right? So the same way in which we have people that support us and maybe doing things that are not conducive of a positive environment for our communities, we need people who are going to hold us accountable, right? We need people who are going to be there for us and support us in our new frame of thinking and in serving our community in that way, right? Because we can only be as strong as the people around us. Um, and it's really a collectivism idea. It's this idea that, again, the individual success is the community success and they're both, they're, they, one cannot be separate from the other. I just want to pause real quick ahead of the next section where there is specific discussion of sexual assault, rape, and pedophilia. And I want to be super, super clear. This conversation does not intend to minimize or dismiss the depth of this kind of trauma, nor condone or normalize this kind of behavior. The intention is, however, to encourage all of us to humanize everyone, no exceptions, and consider alternatives that may prove more effective in disrupting, reducing, and preventing this kind of harm. I care a lot about women's issues, and I think that people are maybe going to be interested in why I am going so deep on toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. and what seemingly is men's issues, right? But what you're saying, I mean, for me, I'm I'm really interested in solutions and like, we just, we can keep, we're just bleeding out in so many ways. And like, there's not even, you can empower women via self-defense or awareness or this or that all day. But as long as you are still churning this culture in which, you know, violence is is power and exactly, then it's just fruitless. So like, we're never going to get ahead of it. And Uh, And I've heard that explained in different ways. Like when they say, I think we should teach people not to be sexually assaulted rather than teach people not to sexually assault people, right? Like we're talking to other men about how we create these barriers for women, right? Or how we create these situations or environments where they don't feel safe or where they're not being valued equally as we are. You know what I mean? Like having this conversation is, is allyship in that way to where we also just, we're also getting to this point where it's like, no, we're not speaking for them. We're, we're speaking with them, right? Mm-hmm. It's Again, it's the community aspect of it to where we have to get to a point where we're seeing another person's problems as our problems. Mm-hmm. Because eventually we can look at the, the length of human history. That, that's what happens, right? Mm-hmm. Like eventually it will become your problem. It ain't on your front door right now, but if we don't do anything about it, it will eventually come to your front door. And I think too often, often we wait for that. Mm-hmm. We wait for the problem to get to our front door rather than holding on to that communal side of us that says like, hey, your problem is my problem. And the quicker we can get to that, the more likely we are to create, to, you know, create and come up with things that are beneficial for us all and, and that are that are healing and healthy in a way that really serves the community as opposed to just saying, let's continue these cycles of violence and harm and punishment and oppression. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by and frustrated by just the denial of things that we see as um deviant or harmful you know i talked with graham a little bit about this and you know his um you know former self and his racially violent and harmful ideas and behaviors um you touched on sexual assault 
these are conversations that we just say these people can't exist. They don't exist. People who have raped, we are not adding any context. And it's a very, very touchy conversation that I can talk about with privilege because that has not been my personal experience. And I don't think it's the work of anyone who has been harmed in, in these ways to have empathy or um, sit and, and try to try to understand the context in which these things happen. But because I have the space where I'm in, I'm, I'm interested in solutions. Like, great. How did any of, not great, let's be clear. Um, but how did any of these people arrive in these places, in these moments? And what did we do about it? And well, not only that, Angela Davis has a beautiful quote. She says, prisons don't disappear social problems. They disappear people. Yeah. And they say, oh, well, we're talking about toxic masculinity, which is ultimately a man's issue. No, that's a community issue, right? Mm -hmm. So it, and it's important. It's, that's why we see ourselves as allyship, right? Mm -hmm. We are then dealing with issues that contribute to women feeling not safe, for their being oppressed, for their being gates and guidelines up. Like when we get to discover these things for ourselves, it then eliminates some of that other stuff. So now it's allyship. I just, I, I notice it happening all the time that this denial and the way that we talk about specifically the issues of sexual assault is, you know, these people who are perverts or freaks or others. And I can imagine the men sitting around us as we're having these conversations thinking like we need to have this moment, I think of, you know, in the way that a lot of people reflected on their racism in the wake of George Floyd and had to reckon with a lot of things like, I think men need to sit there and say, hey, yeah, there's been a lot of probably really gray or not so gray moments in my sexual history. And here I am. And how do we how do we actually you can't create a space for it because it's it's can be dangerous and it's, you know, and it puts people what? at risk of incarceration. But how do you exactly. actually have a real conversation with with men where they can say and reckon with and move forward and reduce harm in that way? Well, there's two two things that I think they're about. Even for the men who don't, and I think Richie did a very good job of this during the documentary when he was saying, like, yeah, we're all, we always like to do like, oh, why are we having this conversation? We're not rapists. Like, and that's true, because you know, most of us are not. But are there things that we've done that contribute to the idea that someone would think that it was okay to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And the way that we consistently like victim blame, right? You see that all the time. So it's like, oh, this person was right. Well, where was she? What time of the night was it? What she was wearing? Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, so we create these stories about why that's okay. And another thing, another, like people, people will always pull at the heartstrings of people to try to get us away from this idea, this idea, right? Um, and one of the ones that I think of all the time that's really hard for people, it's hard for me, even when I was in prison, when you think about people who have caused some type of sexual harm to children, right? It's our natural instinct mm -hmm. to want to protect our children. Mm -hmm. But I think that what's powerful in what you're saying in a creating a space where people can bring that up is there is a book. Oh my goodness, I hope I don't butcher it. I think it's Beyond Survival. And they talk about I want to say it was in Canada or somewhere where they had a group where people could go and they could express like their ideas around pedophilia, right? Without judgment or harm or whatever. And what they found was just by having a group where someone could go and safely do that without fear of being incarcerated or punished or whatever, is the, the those numbers went down. Yes, 
just by having that available to people. Because people are so afraid of it. And because we're so afraid of it, it's like someone who is attracted to children or has these thoughts and behaviors that are violent, sexually violent, like you, how are you ever going to process them, get treatment, get help, get support. And uh, if you bring them up, you're punished for it. Divert. If there's just nowhere to be any kind of honest about it. And then there's this idea that, you know, we all know somebody who's been raped or sexually assaulted and none of us know a rape. It's like the reality is we do. And they're in our community and it's it's really, really hard to get real about that, about the people that we love having problematic and harmful behavior. And it's just so taboo that there's just not any kind of environment where we can make progress around it. I would love to talk more with your, with you and your guys and your team about it. Um, it's, I think there's a lot of opportunity there and I think you're absolutely right. Like what is, what do practical pathways look like? Moving on, um, you today are the co-executive director of Success Stories. I would love to know what the future looks like for you, what for the organ for you personally and for the organization. What would you like to see in prisons and beyond? Yeah, so quite frankly, the way that we the way we kind of sum up the vision is we like to see success stories as the alternative to the punishment system. So like the overall goal is, especially for spaces outside of carceral spaces, right? Um, like why, if, if, there, if there's a kid in school who's, you know, exhibiting problematic behavior, why suspend him? Um, we know that that does nothing for the child. Um, and, and the hopes is that they can send them to success stories or other community-based organizations like ours so that they're given tools in order to curb that behavior. Um, the same thing with our punitive systems at you know, county levels. Like what we hope to be a diversionary program instead of incarcerating our youth, send them to success stories and other programs like ours so we can give them the tools that they need to be effective um, community members. And so it's, we can you know, be producing safer and more equitable communities, right? And we've already been acknowledged, right, for, for our contribution to public safety. So if we've been acknowledged for it, why not continue to do it on a much larger scale? And the same for prisons, right? Like, again, we want to be seen as the alternative to the punishment system. We don't need, you know, unfortunately, prisons are these hotbeds for um, just more trauma um, mm-hmm. on so many levels. Um, and as you've mentioned, most people who go to prison will be home. Um, mm-hmm. So why are, is our concern not their 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 health and well-being as well, right? We need to be more concerned about um, assisting them and giving them the tools they need to lead healthy lives so that our communities are healthy. Because if we don't, you know, this idea that, you know, the, the lie that, you know, um, the prison industrial complex, you know, tells us often is, you know, this is about safety and security when it isn't because you're not concerned with how this person is when they leave, you know, with the exception of lifers and, you know, lifers in the state of California and many other states have to go before a review board, uh, typically with commissioners to see whether or not they should be released. Uh, everybody else does not. So a person can go sit for five, 10 years and not do anything 
can do some meaningful change and then be released to our society. And that is not a model that helps us. Mm-hmm. So why are we not then saying, okay, how do we get involved with other community organizations that are proven to work? Mm-hmm. That's another thing that, that I really don't like. They know that it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're still not, you know, creating policy in any meaningful way that prioritizes this as opposed to the punishment system. Mm-hmm. So I know you're interested in working with adolescents, high schoolers. I'm curious how early you think your messaging is appropriate. You know, for me, as I think about what prevention looks like, it's like maybe really, really early getting people, kids around the idea of just, you know, some of the basic self-awareness stuff that you talk about and even identifying your feelings and, um, you know, it, how does it feel to you to think of like young kids, like elementary kids thinking about their top five and like building a life that's in pursuit of those values and (laughs) having that early understanding. Does that, is that something you're interested in that you feel like would, would work? So absolutely, absolutely. I think it would work, but I want to be sensitive in this way. So right now we are, I think we're middle school. It's the lowest, Um, but I've had a participant I think I've had the youngest participant at age 10. Uh, and quite frankly, he was phenomenal. I think the younger generation kind of, they understand what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. They, they grew up in a time where, you know, gender identity and sexual identity and, and fluidity and all these things are kind of understood early on. So being able to have that conversation early on is, is, is beneficial. And even like you said, being crystal clear on, what you're saying is important to you and whether or not your behavior is supporting what you say is important to you and how we can live in a way that honors that is drastically important. But I think my, my only pause is, is the younger you go, and rightfully so, like there's an education that parents must have. Yeah. Um, because, the, you know, rightfully so, they're gonna be worried about what their children are exposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, I think that you run into that issue there. You start talking about like elementary. I was like, okay, well, we have to, then, you know, we have to educate the parents on what this looks like, blah, blah. And then it goes to the kids. Um, and I think it, thinking big picture, the only, the only way that we could do that is a curriculum change, right? Um, we can engage in making sure that our children and our communities are receiving a curriculum that allows themselves to one be given the full permission to not only to be themselves but seize their success in relationship to the community success mm-hmm. uh, and I think like having that embedded um, in their learning is is drastically important because if you talk to most people they feel isolated they feel alone they feel like they're the only ones that are dealing with these things. They have no one to talk to. So if there's a c- curriculum that is allowing them to see that that is not true, um, that they're not alone, that yeah. they do have people that, you know what I mean? That will then change the fabric of our understanding and uh, give them like some type of meaningful emotional intelligence and uh, and being able to like really look at their behavior and, and to live in integrity and to do something different, to, be not, to not be so impulsive and to like think, um, for the long run. Mm-hmm. 
be really cool to see like some child and parent curriculum going in tandem. I think, I think you raised some interesting, <laughs> what was that? You're on it? Working on it. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. I mean, I've seen that just, you know, so much over the last year or two talking with my family around, about race issues. Like there's, it does seem at a certain point, you have so much to reckon with that it feels it like such a threat to your whole identity and life and behavior that it becomes really difficult to accept some of those concepts and the way that you may have been harmful, harmed communities, harmed your kids um, and created some of these problems. I, I imagine it's easier to get ahead of on the earlier end than it is a lot of time to do the, the undoing and unlearning. Um, but that, that would be amazing. I would love, I'm, I'm really curious to see what you guys, what you guys have cooking over there. So lastly here, I'm curious, just what about this work makes you feel uh, most hopeful? What are you most excited about? Uh, I think daily there's, 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 there's instances where I'm like, oh, this is great. Um, I think that people have been so welcoming and so, like they see that there's a need for this that 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 brings me great hope uh, because that wasn't always the case um there there was there was a you know large amount of time where even in even in prison if we would have brought up this conversation people were just like yep not having it or laugh us out of the place so the, the fact that that shifted and people are seeing the need um and making small incremental steps to change culture mm-hmm. right i think that i i see hope every day in that way Yeah, I think one of the things you guys do so well, I don't know, intentionally or not, but you're making it cool. (laughs) You know, that's all, that's my marketing challenge uh, with thoughtful, just how do you make vulnerability cool? How do you make feeling deeply and expressing, emoting, communicating normal and cool? And um, it's not just like when you talk about that moment of disruption between you and Richie, it's, it's not just disrupting but it's your people are looking at themselves and then aspiring instead to be something else any tips for people who are trying to have these conversations who want to start it with a man in their life or an individual himself uh i think that oftentimes when we start conversations we're concerned with getting our point of view across and that I think that's the biggest, when people hear trauma-informed care, like that's what the biggest importance about trauma-informed care is that if you're trying to start this this conversation with somebody else, try to acknowledge that they're more than likely acting from a place of trauma, right? Um, and that there's trauma involved, so we should have some forgiveness there. Um, and to really listen to them, um, to not be like dogmatic in an approach, but listen to them and try to see where there's areas of connectivity, right? Um, if there's certain insights that you can see that they have, like run with those. Um, or to sometimes sometimes we need to just fully accept people where they're at and say, okay, and then say, you know, ask a general question. How's that working out for you? Mm-hmm. And ask them to be honest with themselves, right? How's it working out for you? Because um, I know deep down, most of us know that when we're, when we're engaged in toxic behavior, we know it's not working, but we're doing it because it's an answer to something else. Yeah. Accepting that it's a process. 
I think that's where I've gone wrong in a lot of my own conversations is, you know, trying to get someone on board that day or in that conversation with what I'm saying versus everything that you guys talk about, which is really creating the space, planting seeds and, and continuing to have those conversations and, and push back against some of those ideas. Yeah, because oftentimes we're just trying to get somebody on our side to see it our way immediately. Truthfully, we're not seeing the person. Yeah. And a lot of times it's just reinforcing some of their own experiences anyway. So it's really, you know, not to sound dramatic or, or like so intense, but it's really just re-triggering trauma, right? Yeah. Because the person doesn't feel seen and they're like, see, this is what I'm talking about. Like, um, and, and, and there has to be an invitation there for them to feel like they're entering their space and they're, they're, um, they're welcome to bring even their, the, the, the dirt, right? Welcome to bring their baggage into that situation to like really have an honest conversation without judgment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, is there anything I haven't asked you that you would like to share? Mm, I would just say that the change we want to create in the world is possible. Um, we just have to acknowledge the ways in which we do it. You know, transformative justice happens all the time. Um, it happens in our families. It happens in our community. It happens to people of affluence. We see it all the time. And I'm saying, let's just not be selective with the people that we're, we're giving it to. Um, and the reason I say that is a lot of people sometimes see it as this big daunting thing that's not possible. So I try to re, you know, encourage them that it's possible because we do it. We're just choosing when we do it. And I'm saying that we should choose to do it more. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that feels really important to me to say. Thank you. And for anyone who wants to get involved with success stories, um, what's the best way to do that? in a prison setting or a corporate setting or a school setting, what is the best way for people to contact you? Sure. Uh, prisons may be a little bit difficult, but if you have somebody on the outside, like if you have somebody inside that wants to reach out, they definitely can reach out. Um, you can find most of our information on Instagram. You can reach out to at prison feminism on TikTok. It's the same thing on Facebook and success stories program. Uh, and then if they want to visit our website, successstoriesprogram.org um, and connect with whoever they'll just, you know, send us, tell us what you need and, and we'll, we'll make sure the right person gets a, a hold of it. Um, it's a, if, it's a, if it's about a viewing or an event or whatever it may be, or bringing the program to somewhere that you feel is useful, we'll make sure that you get in contact with who you need to we'll collaborate. Because the idea is to have this conversation um, in as many places as possible in order for us to create something different and to create this community, a more equitable community that's you know safer for all of us um, and, and having discussions that really are about contributing to change. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for the incredible work you do and your commitment and everything that you have built with Success Stories. Um, It's had a huge impact on me and I can't wait to see how people respond as our partnership starts rolling out. Excited. And where you guys go from here. Thank you so much. This is awesome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thoughtful Human. If you'd like to follow along on our journey or check out our products, you can visit our website at thoughtfulhuman.co or find us on all socials at Thoughtful Human. And of course, if you found this episode useful in any way, we'd so appreciate a review to help us reach more people who might need it. And finally, if you or a loved one needs access to a month of free therapy, you can visit 
betterhelp.com/thoughtfulhuman